0: We have been working our way through this study that we have called Book, Chapter, Verse. And it has been approximately a 75-week study that we're finishing up today. And I am amazed at how fast this study seems to have gone. I'm also delighted that within the context of this study, that at times when I needed to be gone, I believe everybody who filled the pulpit whether our lay people or Pastor Evan, uh, everybody who filled the pulpit just continued the study. So we've been able to keep going with it. And that, uh, that has been absolutely wonderful. It's been, uh, the point of it was to move us through the scriptures quickly. We took, we went book by book by book right through the, if, if, for those of you who weren't here from the beginning, we would we'd, uh, zero in on one book. We take a cup, a verse or two from that book. Zero, prepare a message around them. Go to the next book, and some of the longer books, we took a few extra uh, uh, times inside of them, and so that's why it can't, went beyond the sixty-six books of the Bible because we had some. Uh, multiple uh, entries into the books. Today is the last in this study. We did the beginning of Revelation last week. I want to look at the end of Revelation this week. And because it is the end, I'm calling this, summing it up. We're going to wrap up this study right here. And you're not going to see verses on a screen. If you want to follow, get a pew Bible, get out your phone... It's just going to be too disconnected to try and have you follow what I'm going to do because there's a lot of material I'm going to touch on and uh, hopefully you'll gather something from our time here. What I would like to first point out is that as you get to the chapters, we're going to focus our time in chapters 20 to 22. As we look at these in our summary and summing it up, You'll see these three chapters provide the fascinating summary to the individual book of Revelation. So these three chapters will sum up what we have been, what you would look at if you go from where we were last week through the entire book. They sum it up, and here's how I like to just put the summary into a very quick picture. We mentioned last week that. This book is written to the people in seven different churches and those churches are coming under persecution. In fact, some are told they're going to be asked to stay true to the gospel even though it may cost them their lives. That's the kind of persecution that is coming. So John's writing to these people who need some encouragement and God gives him the revelation as to what to anticipate lies ahead. And in a nutshell... Here's what John is going to say. <laughs> Jesus wins, so hang on. Jesus wins, so hang on. Here's what I mean when I say Jesus wins. If you look in uh, Revelation chapter 20, we read this in verse the second beginning in the second part of verse 4, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus, remember, these are people who themselves are in a tenuous place, and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. So that's, uh, that's verse 4. And then in chapter 21, verse 6, and there's other places we could look to. I'm just trying to show you, that make this point to you, that this This summary to this individual book of Revelation is why it's an encouragement for people to hold on. So he references those who are beheaded for their faith. Chapter 21, verse 6, And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. That's what we looked at last week in chapter 1. The beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And he gives this picture clearly. That there is a culmination to all of this stuff that's going on in the world. And he writes to his readers of the seven churches, hang on. Because at the end, it is all going to be played out in such a way that there is reward. There is value in staying true to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the short summary. The fascinating summary to the individual book of Revelation. And it's there. And it will encourage the people. But what I'd like to note is that that summary in verses 20, chapters 20 to 22 provides a fascinating summary to the entire book of Revelation. And if you're looking at your notes, it's not a misprint, that it says individual book, small b in book, meaning Revelation, the book of Revelation as we have it, and in the second part provides a fascinating summary to the entire book, capital B, meaning our Bibles as a whole. That we're looking, that it provides also a summary for that. So there's there's like a twofold duty that take is taking place there. You following me? I realize that's a little crazy, but here's where I want to go now. And I here's here's what I have to tell you. I'm counting on you drawing on some of the information you already know. We do not have time to go here to here, and here to here, and here. Don't have time. So I'm going to show you what it says in the book of Revelation, counting on you to remember this from your own understanding of the book of Genesis. Uh, If you don't, what I really really would like to suggest, even if you do, it'd be great to go back and do this study on your own. I did this study for the first time uh, probably almost 40 years ago now and it stuck with me, and it's helped me to understand Scripture in its entirety. I'm a big picture kind of guy, so this really works for me, all right? You're getting it today. Sometimes people ask a preacher, they say, how long does it take you to prepare a message? And people who, Dan will tell you this, you can't answer that question, all right? This one's been taking me nearly 40 years to prepare for you today, all right? And I'm got this much time left to preach it so you guys could be here a while think about that 40 years of preparation or you may leave here going after 40 years he sure didn't come up with much I don't know but if we could here's what I want to do I want to just simply take the last three or the first three chapters of Genesis and I want to compare and contrast with the last three chapters of Revelation some of my Sunday school students are going oh you're going to do this again yeah because not everybody has heard this and it's a great, great study for us to do. All right. So that being said, last three chapters of Revelation are 20, 21, and 22, and now we're going to dig into certain spots there. So chapter 20. Notice, if you will, in verse 2, that this angel came down from heaven. They told that in verse 1. Verse 2, he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more. Then you will notice in verse 7, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and dropping down into verse nine, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. I want to just refresh you on something here, and and I've been trying to figure out how to do it visually, and I don't have a simple way to do it. So hopefully my lines in the air will make sense to you. If you will recall, in the first two chapters of Genesis, 1 and 2, there's this creation account. Chapter 1, chapter 2, and it ends on a wonderful note. Everything is good. God looked at all he made. It was very good. Everything is pristine and perfect. You get to the third chapter, and everything breaks loose. Okay, It begins with, now Satan was more cunning than all the beasts of the field. And by the time you're done, after he has influenced Adam and Eve to eat of the fruit, God comes in, he asks of Eve, did you eat of the fruit? She says, the serpent deceived me. And now, for the rest of Scripture... There's this effective presence that is constantly at play, a dark kingdom that is constantly seeking to establish itself over God's kingdom. It is play for the rest of the Bible until we get to the last three chapters. And the first thing to happen in the last three chapters is to remove this one who has caused so much trouble for this entire history of earth to remove him. He is referred to as the serpent of old in Revelation. It was the serpent who was more cunning than every beast of field. You see where we're beginning to go with this? A simple comparison and contrasting. For a thousand years he's taken out off the earth so that he can no longer deceive the nations. What had he done? He deceived Adam and Eve. He, when, when God had said to them, In the day you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. What does he come in? He says, you shall not surely die. God knows in the day you eat thereof. You shall become as gods, knowing good and evil. So, hey, God's just trying to prevent you from getting onto his plane. You're not going to die. That was a deception. (laughs) They ate, they died. Death immediately was brought into the picture. In the third chapter coming in, but in the third chapter before we exit, He's taken off the scene, and he will no longer have their influence upon what is happening. Is that not fascinating? Stay with me on this for just a little bit, if you would. Also, as we just come right back into that chapter, chapter 20, I want you to notice something else. The end of verse 4, they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The end of verse 6, they shall reign with him a thousand years. Now I don't want to get into a discussion about the question of the millennium. What I want to deal with there was significant for what we want to say is they're reigning. Do you recall what God created man to do? Let us make man in our image and what? Give him dominion over the earth, the beasts of the field, the birds and the fishes. He was to have a place of dominion. However, when he fell and bought into the deception everything went kittywumpus and i think even in his fallen state he lost track of what it was how he was to have dominion now we have corrupted dominion as man seeks to have power over his fellow man no no we're supposed to subdue the earth guys not each other and he enslaves himself or well, one enslaves another and all of this stuff but now we have This idea of dominion for a thousand years under the perfect righteousness now led by Christ because Satan is out of the picture. The perfect righteousness of them hand in hand with Christ reigning on the earth. Oh, there's another theme that is picked up. The dominion is now restored in a way that is righteous. So that's just some things that we note in chapter 21, or chapter 20. As we come to chapter 21, let's notice these things. Now I saw, and we're into the last two chapters now, right? Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And I heard, I'm dropping down to verse 3 just for the sake of time, and I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away first two chapters ended with this magnificent creation. Last two chapters, in this summary, we find a re-creation. That those things that have been corrupted by sin are now done away and God brings in this new creation. You see the connection? Very simple, very easy to see. There is a new creation. In addition to that... We have the tabernacle of God is with men. We now have man, and we'll see it in our memory verse uh, for today. We'll see that man now is restored to being in the presence of God. You will recall book of Genesis. If you don't know this, go back and read it. But when we're in the book of Genesis, we have God walked looking for Adam after they fell. We get a sense as to what their relationship was like because it says God was looking for Adam in the cool of the day, and Adam hid himself. There was a face-to-face direct encounter that Adam was experiencing in the garden up until the fall. But now we have the tabernacle of God is with men. He's going to dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will, uh, uh, let's see, he he will dwell with them. They shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Where did all of the tears, the crying, the death, where did it all come in? Chapter 3. When the, when the evil one came in, and now it's been done away, and now God's presence is able to be back with his people. Here's something. This takes us a little bit deeper, and uh, see if you want to do something with this. Here's something for you to think on for not a day or two. Here's something you might want to think on for quite some time. Chapter 21, verse 9. Referencing the seven angels who had seven bowls, That was all stuff taking place earlier. It says, come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And now we have this imagery introduced of the bride of Jesus Christ. Now, the reason I pointed out, and you're going the ones who are going to reflect on it, okay? What else is part of the first three chapters in Genesis? God created Eve to be a bride, a helper suitable for him. That theme is brought back in a way that is whole and good. Only this time, Christ is seen as the one who receives a bride. Hmm. And now it is beautiful and it's not going to be corrupted. So draw on that imagery for a while. That's an interesting thing. Go down to chapter 21. Verse 16, we're going to do a little, bit of a, a little bit deeper of a dive on this one. But I want you to see it. Verse 16, the city, this is this new Jerusalem that comes down, is laid out as a square. Its length is as, a, is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. That maybe doesn't seem like a whole lot of interesting information. The city seems to be shaped like a cube, this one that comes down. But I want to remind you of something. I think we noted it during our study on Hebrews. There are a couple of different places in Scripture, some in the Old Testament where they make the tabernacle, they make the temple. And the Holy of Holies, where God says he will meet them over the mercy seat, is shaped, that room is cuboidal, if you will, in its shape, in its geometry. And we noted when we looked at that, that there and then here in Revelation, God demonstrates his presence in the context of being with a cube as far as the physicality. What did we note about that? We try and come up with illustrations of the Trinity, I believe God is revealing the perfect illustration that we can understand of the Trinity. Because each side or each dimension of the cube, its breadth, its width, its height, is distinct from the other. They're distinct entities, yet they are all co-equal, one with the other. I think that's a magnificent imagery that God has given us. And it's in a couple of places that it shows up. And so that's why I like to go there and thinking about how, an illustration of the Trinity as we try and understand it. I think God's given us one that just works. And you know, if you, if you read about stuff with people who like to think big thoughts, which I try and avoid as much as possible, those mathematicians always want to take over and they want to put everything in the form of some type of math. Okay, well here you can just put it all into good Old uh, was it Pythagorean? No, Euclidean geometry, and it works. But we have a an image of a triune, a triunity, if you will, where God is present. Huh? Why does that matter? Because you don't have that same image in Genesis one, two, and three. But you do have this. So, what I'm suggesting is there's a hint of the Trinity here, at least a hint. As to how we might understand the Trinity, recall it, the creation, what did God say? He said, let us make man in our image. Plural. And when we're studying Trinitarian theology, that's one of the first places that we need to go to understand that there, you know, one God, a plurality of persons, three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I think you have both. Both given to us in a uh, perhaps not the most direct form, but an available form now with the uh, let us make man as well as the, the cube shape of the new Jerusalem, which is three totally distinct yet perfectly equal um, elements to that. How about this? But I saw, verse 22, but I saw no temple in it, This is New Jerusalem. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. How interesting is that thought? Go back to the book of Genesis. You can look it up for yourselves, but... We all know, you know, in the beginning, God created the heavens, the earth, the earth without form, a void, and darkness upon the face of the deep. God said, let there be light. And there was light. And the evening and the morning were the first day. Oh, okay. But what do you do with the fact that you have to get to day four before the sun, moon, and stars are created for times and days and seasons? Which causes me to ask... What was the source of that light? It's just light. It's just light that is there, illuminating things, and it doesn't have a source in where we're used to light coming from. Isn't that fascinating? And when you get to the end of the book of uh, Revelation, as we have just read, okay, the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine in, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. Which is causes me to believe that back in Genesis, that's what we were seeing. Somehow God was manifesting his glory and it's going to, uh, light emanating from him is going to be what, where it begins. But it's not the light of the sun, moon, or the stars. Isn't that fascinating? Now that it's being recreated in its proper way. Notice verse 27, but there shall be verse 20, chapter 20, "But there shall by no means enter into it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Nothing is going to enter into this. this perfect state now. Nothing is going to come in to it. Do you recall? In Genesis, chapter three, two great pictures of, of creation. Third one, the evil one enters now onto the scene. As well as by the end of the chapter, what has happened? Here we have this idyllic situation. They've been driven from the garden. A cherubim is placed on the east end to guard uh, the entry back into the garden so they cannot get back in and partake of the tree of life, live forever in this fallen state. Isn't that interesting? Something is being kept out from the garden. Unfortunately, mankind, whose story we're following, is now out in this broken, fallen world where the evil one is deceiving. But now, after chapter 20, where the evil one is taken out of the way, now this place is going to stay pristine and nothing will enter it again. There will be no intrusion of the evil one to come in and destroy this new creation that God has brought. Interesting, isn't it? Another little connection. All right, that brings us to chapter 22. Chapter 22, verse 1. He showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its streets and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore 12 fruits, each tree tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Begins with this question of this river of life. If you go back to Genesis, you will see that in the garden there were four rivers that proceeded from it. Four rivers. Life-giving flow that were there. And now we have this river of life present again in the new creation. In the middle of street, verse 2, either side was what? The tree of life. I think it's mentioned only one other time before the book of Revelation through the entire Bible because man had been separated from it in Genesis chapter 3. So he couldn't take of it and live forever. And now do you see? The tree of life is back and there is access to it and there is value from it. How incredible is that? But that's in the recreation where nothing will come and now destroy this recreation. He says in verse 3, there will be no more curse. You'll recall, Genesis chapter 3, you will recall that the curse that was placed upon each one of them, the woman, the man, and the serpent, all had a curse placed upon them. That's not happening anymore. There's no longer going to be this curse that makes, uh, that makes farming hard. Right. I bumped into Kim just on his way as I was coming in this morning. And how you doing? Pretty good. And, and, and he made the observation that farming is a little easier right now because the pain in his back has been alleviated through this interesting procedure that they have. But he said it's nice to be able to crawl over the combine again and get some work done. But you see, why is, why is it that it was painful for him to farm and have a breakdown on his back? Because there's a curse on the earth that it is going to be by the sweat of the toil of your brow. It's going to be hard. It's going to be backbreaking, And the, the ground is no longer just going to produce the way that it should. Guess what? The ground is going to produce the way that it should. And it is going to provide. But now that is gone. What I think is, you know, perhaps as interesting as anything... Um, is on this whole curse situation as you will recall the curse that came upon the serpent. The curse upon the serpent was this um, that the seed of the woman would come and he would bruise the heel of the seed of the woman but the seed of the woman would bruise his head. So what is that? Genesis 3.15 It's the first prediction of a coming Messiah. That's a book, that's a verse you have to have pinned down in your understanding. The first prediction of the coming Messiah. And that coming Messiah is going to be in conflict with this serpent who has beguiled and will continue to beguile. They're going to do head-to-head conflict. And guess what? The serpent is actually going to be able to deliver a wound to the son of the woman, who, of course, is Jesus. We know that now. All right? He's going to deliver a wound. But it's not a fatal wound. That is the most one of the most magnificent realities in this thing we call the gospel is that in time space history the second person of the trinity I believe identified in that cube the second person of the trinity now comes takes on flesh dies on the cross because satan is trying to get him out of the picture he dies on the cross it looks like all is lost until 3 days later he rises from the dead and it was only a bruising of his heel it was not fatal But in chapter 20, we've already read how Jesus delivers the fatal blow and takes Satan completely off the scene and he will have no place ever again to inflict his deception, his pain, his horrific uh, desire to be like God ever again in fulfillment of Genesis 3.15 and he now spends eternity cast into the lake of fire. Verse 4, one of our memory verses, They shall see his face. And his name shall be on their foreheads. They were driven from the presence of God, and now they're going to dwell with him. He's going to be their tabernacle. This face to face relationship will be there yet again. How magnificent is that? How wonderful is that? And then, as we've already noted, verse five says something again: "There shall be no night there; they need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever." So we have the light issue repeated. We have the reigning issue repeated. We have the 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 presence of God repeated. All this magnificent stuff. And you see it when you simply take the first three chapters of Genesis. Say, "Here's where this thing starts." You look at the last three chapters of Revelation and this all precipitates out without a whole lot of effort. I'd encourage you to make the the study on your own. See what more stuff you will find. But that's why I say the fascinating summary to the individual small b book of Revelation provides a fascinating summary to the entire capital B book of Revelation. That's our Bible. And so the one that we see here we see all sorts of what was, what was lost is restored and what came in that was evil is now eliminated throughout those comparison of those three chapters. So why does that matter, friends? Why does it matter? Here, I'd like to just give you a couple of summary thoughts here. We'll go with it. Number one, the Bible is a unity. It's telling one continuing story. Because it's such a big story, we teach it in little small stories and short stories. But we must not lose sight of the fact that the Bible is a unity telling one continuing story. Sometimes we refer to it it, rightly so. We say it's the story of the gospel. This is the gospel. This is the good news. I like to boil it down even more than that into one word. It's redemption. God is buying back that which was lost. And this is how God is doing it. One continuing story. Now, here's what makes this especially fascinating. The Bible being this unity, there is not another one like it. Nothing else is like it. In all of literature, in literature, all of history, for all of mankind, and think about this. Here's why I make this ridiculous, outrageous statement. But argue me if I'm wrong. Argue with me if I'm wrong. It was written, the writing of this story, took place over 1,500 years it took to write it. Now, it spans a time greater than that. Because when Moses wrote, he was looking back to the creation account. And when John writes the Revelation, he's looking forward to the culmination. But they're about 1,500 years apart. It was written by over 40 plus authors. Do you know that? You ever think about that? Three different languages were used to write it. It takes place over three different continents, and yet it tells one continuing story. Anything else comes close to this? Anything at all? So I like to put it this way. It has the fingerprints of God all over it. One, in just the magnificence of how you get this story. But two, No one would ever have thought this up on their own. Fallen man does not think in these terms. Fallen man does not think in the terms of, oh, man sinned because he was led by Satan. Therefore, God takes on flesh in order to pay the penalty for that sin and to restore man to himself. Man doesn't think of that. Man thinks in these terms. You sin, buddy, you do the crime, you pay the time. That's how it is. You got what's coming to you. That's how we think. And it's, an, an, it's, an, it's the antithesis to the grace of the gospel, isn't it? Because in this magnificent story we're having revealed for us that each of us in all of our guilt and our shame and the absolute reality that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and we all bear that, and yet the Creator God, the second person of the Trinity, took on flesh. And died in our place. We uh, we, we read the account about the substitutionary work. Only God will come up with that as a plan. This then means you can believe it, trust it, and it is worth a lifetime of study. You can believe it, trust it, and it is worth a lifetime of study. And I would just like to say... Ivy did not waste her time internalizing Scripture, delighting in the Lord, talking with her son virtually every day in her latter years via the Internet and reviewing Scripture and the work of God and the Word of God. That was no waste of time. It merits a lifetime of study. So if I could, having made that point, I'd just like to throw in Hey, it, it's good to be back together, isn't it? This is the last weekend of the summer. Next week, we're going to have a little bit of rally Sunday. We want to get ourselves back together, get back to the normal times that we do things. I think this would be, if we get this, this would be a wonderful commitment for us to make. In light of knowing that it is worth a lifetime of study, wouldn't it be great if we went about this next cycle of ministry? And we made a commitment between now and May when we know it all falls apart again and summer happens. But wouldn't it be amazing if each of us said, I am committing to being in church and I'm committing to being in Sunday school that this is the necessity of my life. That I am going to be in the Word with God's people. This is my number one necessity on a Sunday morning. Because we allow a whole lot of other things that help us say, well, yeah, I don't really need to be there. And I'd like to suggest that if we get grasped what I'm talking about here this morning, we're going to say, no, 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 no. The necessity is be with God's people on, on a Sunday morning so we can be in the Scriptures together, it can be a part of discussions in Sunday school, we can hear the proclamation of the Word, we can, uh, we can worship by proclaiming the Word to God Himself. But this is my necessity for a Sunday. It's not a convenience issue. I'm naming being with God's people a necessity of every Sunday morning regardless of all these other things that are there. That could change our lives, friends. That could change our church. Just a thought. Last two very briefly. I know it passed the time. God is still using this book to bring people to himself. He's still using it. I remember in talking with Dan about this morning, one of the things he said to me, you know, New Folden is still a good place to come to Christ. God is still calling to people out to New Folden. Northwest Minnesota, God is still reaching out to people. And uh, just like with his parents, it's still going on. So he's still using the word to bring people to himself, and he is still using the word to transform people into Christ-likeness, because that's the goal. Because <laughs> we had the image of God damaged when we bought into the deception. And God's restoring us back to be like Christ. And his word is necessary for that. As we read from that one guy, that article a couple weeks ago, who said, we don't abandon the word when it says things that we find uncomfortable. No, we continue to study it until our minds are transformed. And it shapes us. We don't try and dictate what it should say. Father, thank you thank you that your word is so magnificent. It, 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 it speaks of you throughout, Lord. And I pray that you'll stir in each one of us a new and fresh desire and a new and fresh commitment to make being in your word with your people a regular, necessary event of our lives in this coming year, Father. I pray that you'll do a miraculous and outrageously wonderful work that we can see and sense because of our commitment to your scriptures. Thank you for the magnificence of the story of the gospel, Lord. We thank you for that and and just pray we might continue to revel in it. In Jesus' name, amen.